John chapter 9. Well, let me just tell you where we're going, where we've been, and then we're, where we're going to go in the next couple of weeks. If you're visiting with us, we've been in a series on Hebrews, and we do what's called verse-by-verse expositional preaching here. Expositional preaching means to expose the text. It's taking the main idea of the text, contemporizing it, and making it the main idea of the sermon. This is a way I don't come up with an idea and then just go cherry-pick verses to, to say what I want the Bible to say. We say, no, this is the Word of God. It is inspired. It is authoritative. It is without error, and it is sufficient. And so, really what I'm doing is, is I'm the waiter, bringing it from the kitchen. It's already made to your table. And so, every time we preach here, even if it is a one-off sermon, that's what this text is meant to say. We can apply it in different ways, but, but I need to make sure I get the main point right. So we're taking a, a brief break from Hebrews. We'll probably spend an, uh, a year and a half in Hebrews. Um, we're going to dip into John for a couple weeks. Next week, I'm going to preach on our covenant. It's probably been a decade since we preached on our covenant. Uh, that will be the, the only time, one of the few times, where it's not truly expositional, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring out what these verses mean in passages. And it's basically the 39 one another's of the New Testament. And then after that, I'm going to preach our theme verse, our theme text, which is um, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we focus on verse 8. I'll probably cover verses 1 through 8. And then we'll dive back into Hebrews. But during the Christmas season, we wanted to spend just a moment talking about what John the Evangelist, as old dead guys used to say, the Gospel of John... And how he takes these, these signs, uh, he writes his theme verse in John chapter 20, verse 31, that this, these things, this book, this gospel has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you may have life in his name. If he had just stopped with Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, well, some people would have been fine with that. But he adds this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so he takes us each week with these signs to a crossroads. That if Jesus is who he says he is, if he is not only the Messiah, but if he is God of very God, then then we're at a crossroads. We have a decision to make. We either bow the knee or we bow the chest. Think about that as a picture. There are only two responses to Jesus Christ. We bow the knee or we bow the chest. And that's what we see in responses to these signs. Uh, Think about it even in terms of uh, his first miracle, changing the water into wine at Cana. It was to be a glimpse of His glory. It wasn't just that He's otherworldly, but that it it was a picture of what is to come. The marriage feast of the Lamb. And with each sign, he seems to progress with these responses. Last week, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. And we often just stop there with, well, this is about a boy's lunchbox and five loaves and two fishes. Isn't this amazing? But if you follow it through towards the end of the chapter, we see two responses, don't we? We see those that give us the bread... I want to eat another lunch. And then we see those who understand it as He's the bread of life. 
There are those who believe and receive and those who spit out the eternal bread. And we know this is true because Christ turns around to His disciples, His twelve, after many of His disciples have left Him. And He says, so are you going to leave too? You remember Peter's response? It was great. John 6, 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. It is a response of trusting and obeying. It is taking the bread of life and and ingesting it because it is sweet to those who believe. It is the smell of aroma. Well, today we're going to look at another sign. It's one we know well. The blind man is given sight. In fact, we often use in Christianity, I was blind, but now I see, right? So we understand a measure of the spiritual significance here. But, uh, but there may be more than you're familiar with. Let me give you three acts in today's narrative. Number one, the sight of the blind. Number two, the blindness of the self-righteous. And number three, the response to the light. And I'll repeat these again. The sight of the blind. Verse 1, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, means teacher, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? You have two choices here. Clearly, someone sinned. Was it, was it him or was it his parents' fault that he should be blind? Now, it's very important to understand the culture in which they lived. These disciples are simply relating what was already accepted as a given, that crippling illness was a direct result of sin. Now, before you just write this off as like, oh, that's, that's kind of how they used to do bloodletting in order to help someone get better, this concept is not wholly untrue. If you go back to the healing of the lame man, Christ does explain that his illness was apparently, at least partially, if not wholly, a result of his sin. But Christ teaches elsewhere that it does not mean that in every case, or even in most cases, that sickness, illness, deformities are a result of sin. We live in a fallen world, and as a result, we're broken, right? We only have to live through the coronavirus to know that. We cannot resist certain infirmities. But what this does is this sets up the purpose of this sign. So it's an important ingredient in there that we understand how they're thinking. Look at verse 3 now. Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now watch this, verse 5. While I am in the world, I am, what does it say? The light of the world. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now don't miss this because He's about to heal a blind man. And blind men live in darkness. He's about to give us 
a glimpse of his glory. Jesus' signs always point to a greater reality. It's not just the bread for lunch, it's the bread of life. It's not just the wine at a wedding, it is a symbol of joy and the messianic kingdom has arrived. And here he says, I am the light of the world. He's about to do something, and it's much more than bringing just physical light to some cloudy eyes. He's about to bring light to the spiritually blind and blindness to those who reject the light, which we'll find out later. Let me give you a little more background. This is right on the heels, we know from chapter 8, of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you'll remember, this is a week-long celebration where the Jews would remember how the Lord provided for them for 40 years in the wilderness. And what they would do is they would set up uh, tents with branches and makeshift uh, dwellings either on their roof or out in, the, uh, in, their, in their yard, and they would live in them. And it was meant to spark a remembrance of how the Lord provided for them when they had no home. And how he provided bread daily in the form of manna and water so that they would not thirst and die. How their shoes did not wear out. And how he was with them. So it was a very important festival that they would celebrate for a week. Now what's interesting in celebration of God's provision is that on the last day of the feast, people would carry torches in Jerusalem. And they would walk around the walls of the temple and they would put the torches in the walls of the temple and it was meant to signify something. That they were to be a light to the Gentiles. Specifically, the Messiah who was to come would be a light unto the Gentiles. It's almost like they had forgotten that that was the purpose of the light. That was the purpose of even why they were called the Abrahamic covenant, that they were to be a blessing to all, a light unto the Gentiles. And so when Christ is in Jerusalem and he's walking around the temple and he's preaching and he says, I am the light of the world, he's probably standing underneath the torches and I am the light of the world. Have you guys forgot what this is about? And now what's he about to do? Bring light to some dark eyes. It gets better. He sees this fella. He's just clarified he's the light of the world. And now he takes some clay. He spits on it. And he applies it to the eyes of this blind man. And he tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He sends him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. They say, well, why don't you say it that way? Because Siloam means sent. It's a transliteration of actually Siloa or Shiloh, which you may recognize. Genesis 49.10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor from the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Siloam, Shiloh, is what's in Scripture, comes. And to him shall be obedience of the people. So think about it this way. The one who is sent sends the blind man to the scent pool to wash. It was called the scent pool 
because it was outside the city walls and water was sent from the Kidron Valley. So you have these kind of double meanings, but it comes, comes through very clear to Jews. And who was John written to? To Jews, so that they may believe. Probably Jews who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, until the Messiah comes. So it's just, it's just dripping with, with messianic excitement that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the long-awaited light of the world. He is the sent one. And he is taking someone who is in darkness and he's saying, go and wash and see light. Well, the man is healed, and then the majority of the text is spent on reactions, which is kind of interesting. Verse 8, neighbors who previously saw him as a beggar. Now, now first of all, neighbors, people who live in his same neighborhood, same community, who also saw him every day, where? Begging. You know, it's, it's the same guy. I've seen him grow up. I've lived next to him. I know who he is. And look what they say in verse 8. Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? They don't believe their eyes. It looks like him. Dresses like him. Smells like him. Yeah, this has got to be him. And yet still others are saying, no, no, he's like him. Verse 9, but what does he keep saying? I'm the one. I'm the one. I love it. It's like, he's not deaf. He's blind. He's standing. I'm right here. It's me. No, that's not him. No, trust me. I've seen him every day on the road to work. That's not him. No, no, I think that's him. It's me. I can see. That's, you're supposed to get that out of it. They're all asking the same question. How then? Were your eyes opened? If it is you and you were blind, how? What did you do? Look at his answer in verse 11. This man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. Why didn't he know? Because Jesus sent him to the pool of Siloam to wash. And when he came back, Jesus is gone. So he hasn't seen the miracle worker with his own eyes yet. But John is doing something very interesting here. He's showing you that the blind man knows the name of Jesus. Now, if you were reading John chronologically, and you know that he's just healed the lame man... There's a stark difference. The lame man didn't know Jesus' name and frankly didn't care. He's putting a stark comparison between the two. Both were in conditions which made them outside the community. Both were in conditions which they could not work for themselves. Both were given something that they could not attain on their own. And yet one has a vastly different response than the other. There's something else interesting here. You've heard me say that there was nothing unique in Jesus' name. If you ever wonder why why 
Mexicans especially, you know, will name their kids Jesus. Like, why would they name Jesus? That's, that's, a, that's a holy name. No, it's not. It was simply an Aramaic form of Joshua. So it was a very common name. But the meaning of his name was something unique. Yoshua. By the time it was Christ came along, it was Yahshua. Yah, Yahweh, Shua, salvation. The Lord, God is my salvation. Who healed you? Who caused you to see? Yeshua, the Lord is my salvation. He unwittingly proclaims who Jesus is, not even making the connection yet. Well, now look at the blindness of the self-righteous. Verse 13, the neighbors bring him to the Pharisees. And what we have essentially is a formal inquiry with a person of interest, but it is not exactly a fair hearing. Verse 13, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. You might circle that Sabbath. Remember what this note on the Sabbath means, right? We don't care what you did. If you did it on the Sabbath, now you're in trouble. And this is where he had violated some additional contra-biblical rules that Judaism had incorporated into their religion and worship. It wasn't scriptural, but they had added certain things. Yes, you were not to work on the Sabbath, but they had come up with an entire list of you could only take this many steps, and you could only put this much here, and you could only do this, that, and the other. And actually, the rabbis had determined that there was 39 classes of work that were absolutely forbidden on the Sabbath. Okay, so how does this apply to Jesus healing a blind man? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because one of the classes of work is that, you know what? If it could have waited until the next day, you should have waited until the next day. And you're meant to just laugh at this. It completely violates both the spirit and the purpose of Shabbat. Of, of bringing God glory. But even if you could understand that, that remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, this, this other violation is just off the charts because it truly was a work issue. Remember what he did with the clay. He took the clay and he spat upon it and then he mixed it together. Well, you know what? That's kneading. Jesus is doing bakery work here, apparently. Literally, that's what they got him on. That's what they were thinking. But we all know that this is not really an issue of the Sabbath. This is, this is an issue of authority, isn't it? Who is in authority here? The Pharisees, the Sadducees. Jesus is teaching and preaching as one who has authority and not as the scribes. He is threatening their livelihood. He's threatening their business, and they don't like it. So they're going to use technicalities. Look at verse 15. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. He tells the same exact story he told to the neighbors, but look at the Pharisees' response in verse 16. 
Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And what we have here in the answer to the question, Who is this guy? Is you have a group of Pharisees who are saying, Ah! He cannot be from God because he violated the Sabbath. And you've got this other group that says, yeah, but how could someone who's a sinner possibly heal someone who was blind? And these two camps were legitimate in history. One followed Rabbi Shammai, the other one followed Rabbi Hillel. The first one we heard, how can this guy possibly be from the Lord? He's a sinner, that's Shammai. Hillel, well, you know, I've never seen a a pagan, be able to give a blind man sight. So they're arguing a bit, but then something interesting happens in verse 17. These great theologians are debating all the finer points, and they turn to the blind man. And they say in verse 17, well, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes, which I think is really funny because what are they doing? They're admitting that a noteworthy miracle has happened by someone who is not them, right? And his response was, he is a prophet. He stands with Jesus. Now we're going to realize in a moment here what a big deal this is. He knows what a big deal it is. He stands with Jesus. But they're not buying his version. They don't even believe it's a real miracle. So they call his parents to question him. And and what they're doing here is they're going to question whether the son is lying or not. Is this your son who you say was blind? You tell us what happened. And before we answer this, I think we need to realize what is also at stake with them. Let me explain. Even though you have this massive Roman Empire, the Jews were such troublemakers that they ended up letting Palestine be a temple state. A temple state basically means that in matters of faith and practice with regards to Judaism, they could govern themselves provided it didn't violate Roman law or they didn't have to use the death penalty, i.e., this is one reason why they couldn't kill Christ. Otherwise, they would have stoned him. He was crucified because he he received the death penalty under Roman law, but they were not allowed to kill him. But anything else under matters of faith and practice, they could sort of handle. Now, in small matters, those were handled at the synagogue level. The synagogue level is kind of like your local church level. The Pharisees ran the synagogue. So they would handle things like violations of the Sabbath and all these other stuff. Whereas the Sanhedrin, that was the temple, those were bigger deals. Okay, The Pharisees didn't like this guy who claims to be this carpenter's son who claims to be the Messiah. But it's eventually going to rise all the way to the Sanhedrin. They're going to say, we've got to do something about him. Keep that in mind. It was the synagogue that encapsulated your community. Your neighbors. If you had a little store, it was your neighbors who patronized you. They bought from you. If you were a carpenter, they bought your furniture. If you were a farmer, they bought your crops. Why? Your family. 
You went to synagogue together. Your kids bar mitzvahed at the same time, right? Now they realize what's at stake here. Look at verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. What did they say? We know he was born blind, but he's an adult, you ask him. See, they put it at crossroads. If they confirm that a noteworthy miracle has happened, if they stand with Jesus, they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. They're going to lose their work. There is no Medicare. There is no Obamacare. There is nothing. They will be rejected. John is writing to Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And he's telling them that Jesus is indeed the Christ. Believe on Him and you will be saved for eternal life. And they're reading this they're going, if I do this, I will be kicked out of the synagogue. I will lose my business. I will lose my home. I will lose my family. And they're looking at the response of this from his parents. They're scared. Put yourself in their shoes. John wants us to. Imagine what it was like for that mother. She knew when that baby was four weeks old and she would smile at him and he did not respond that he was blind. And it wasn't just the physical infirmity that bothered her that caused her such grief. She knew at that moment he would be a beggar for the rest of his life. And now he sees. Does she want to bring that beggar-ness on herself? Is this miracle worker, is this guy who claims to be the Messiah, is it really worth it? John wants us to realize that following Christ will cost you everything. Will you proclaim the truth? Or will you say, we... We know this is our son and he was born blind, blind, verse 20. But how he sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. I like what D.A. Carson says. The parents of the healed man may be sketched in with such detail so that John's readers will see an example of people who know the truth but will not boldly step over the line with courageous witness. Sets us up for the response of the blind man, doesn't it? And in exasperation, the Pharisees turn to the healed man again for cross-examination. Verse 24, give glory to God, for this man is a sinner. Now that give glory to God doesn't mean thank God for your healing. That means swear to God to tell the truth that this man is not of God. That's what they're forcing him to do. Incriminate this man. Now, set against the backdrop of his parents' response, watch what this man does. Verse 25. Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, though, that though I was blind, 
now I see. If you're a believer here, you can say that, right? Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And it starts to just cycle all over again. They're looking for inconsistencies in his testimony. They're not asking to get the truth. He realizes it. And before I show you his answer, I want you to realize who this man is. He's uneducated. He's never read a book. He's spent his entire life sitting and begging. We can expect the first answer. All I can tell you, I was blind, but now I see. But would we really expect the second? Verse 27. I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples, do you? (laughs) An uneducated, formerly blind beggar is in a room full of PhDs, and he just knocked one out of the park for all of their book learning. And he said, why do you keep asking? Do you want to be his disciple? And as he rounds second base, he gives him another one. They get angry, though, first, and they say, I mean, they just explode. Verse 28, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. And he says, verse 30, well, you know, here, that's the amazing thing. Literally, that's that's how it's, that's the amazing, you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears them. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a blind person. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. (laughs) You know, that's the funny thing here. Because you say you know that you're disciples of Moses and you know he's not from God. But we all know that someone not from God can't do this. Shouldn't you guys know this? You guys are the experts, and yet you can't figure out where he came from? Kostenberger explains it this way. This blind man progresses from calling Jesus a prophet to defending him against the Pharisees' charges to inviting them to become Jesus' disciples to correcting their doctrine. And he knows what's coming. Don't think for a minute he doesn't. He's uneducated, but he ain't stupid. Verse 34, you were born entirely in sins, and you are teaching us. Translation, you blind bat. They unwittingly confirm the miracle, and it says, then they put him out. That doesn't mean that they just put him out of the room. That means they excommunicated him. That's amazing. To everyone in his world, he is now dead. And he can see them now when they look at him with disdain. He can see 
them as they cross the other side of the street and won't talk to him. Look at our third point, response to the light. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Verse 36, Who is he that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one talking with you. We have a sign giving sight to the blind. We have the significance that this man standing before me is, in fact, the Son of God. And John says, this is not about a miracle. This is about a glimpse of his glory. And this man who has stood with Jesus now has a choice to make. Verse 38. Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Those who have been given spiritual sight boldly stand with Christ and bow low in worship. And John wants us to see this. He wants us to see that genuine belief is always inextricably connected to worship. It's not an intellectual ascent. An intellectual ascent would have been, I was blind, now I see. But no, he's a prophet. Do you want to become his disciples? Lord, I believe. And he worshipped. So, before we ask ourselves where we stand on this, John's also going to show us one other thing. That he truly is the king of kings. Look at verse 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Don't stumble over this. Don't stand in judgment over Jesus on this. We know from Scripture God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But we also know from Romans 1 that Romans 3, no one seeks him. No, not one. Each of us have turned away, Isaiah says. The gospel calls to all. But those who claim that they can see when in fact they don't or better said, won't, is not an issue of macular degeneration. It's an issue of spiritual pride. Those who reject the light and claim to see are shown to be blind. Verse 40. Those of the Pharisees, apparently, who were around and heard him speaking, said, we are not blind too, are we? Verse 41, Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. One commentator says it well, the only sin against which there is no remedy is spiritual pride that claims to see while being in fact 
blind. So which one are you today? You know how you can tell? If you're, if you're a member here at Metro, you've written a testimony. And in the center of that testimony is the gospel. That at some point when I heard Scripture, when someone shared the Word of God for me, with me, when the Holy Spirit was convicting me, I repented of my sins and placed my faith in Jesus Christ. It wasn't I just started to believe in Jesus and added Him to my life. It was I repented of my sins. I was blind, but now I see. Eternal life is for those who first realize how dark they were, how blind they were. If you claim to be a Christian and you just think you had a spiritual nearsightedness, you're missing the point. The good news follows the bad news. And the bad news is is that we chose our own blindness. And the Pharisees refused to admit that they even needed a Savior. But when you realize your own blindness and you realize the sight that is available, genuine faith will do the two things that this blind man did. What are the two things he did? Number one, he stood with Christ. Metro Bible, I think in the decade to come, this will be the test for us. Will we stand with Christ? And he was bold about it. He didn't parse words like his parents. He was bold about it. And then, when he stood in front of Jesus, he worshipped. Salvation is this picture. Realizing your blindness. Turning from your sin and self-worship. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ, which results in worship and in boldness. I pray that as we begin a new year, we'll look at this blind man, this formerly blind man, and we'll say, if this guy who has nothing, and now it's about to get worse, because think about it, as a beggar, His neighbors provided for him. So now he can see, which is great, but no one will. But he's just bowed the knee to to who? God of the universe, who feeds sparrows, who, who look at the lilies of the field. For I tell you, not even Solomon, arrayed in all his glory, was more beautiful than these. If God is taking care of his creation, how much more will he take care of his children?